0: Welcome to The Renaissance Life, a podcast dedicated to the pursuit of creativity, mastery, and a meaningful life. My name is Josh. I am your podcaster in crime, your D&D master, your brother from another mother, aka I'm the guy who listens, makes dumb jokes, and asks lots of questions. Uh, If you're a newcomer, thank you for taking the time to listen. This is a podcast for multidisciplinaries. So whether you're an entrepreneur, an artist, developer, musician dog sweater, fashion designer, or, you know, all the above. This podcast is for you to help you be more creative and to be a guide on your journey to a mastery. Today's conversation is with the incredibly smart and insightful Derek Sivers. You may know Derek Sivers as the founder of CD Baby, which was the largest seller of independent music with $100 million in sales. Derek eventually sold CD Baby for $22 million. Giving the proceeds to a charitable trust for music education. His TED Talks have a combined view count of over fifteen million views. Fifteen million. His short and sweet book, Anything You Want. It's one of my favorite books of all time, really. And excitingly he has three new books that he's currently working on and that are in various stages of completion Your Music and People, Hell Yeah or No, and How to Live. You know me, I'm a book lover. I, I'm i so excited for all three of those books. <laughs> I'm from the South, so I can do that. <laughs> Derek is a writer, musician, programmer, entrepreneur, and honestly, he's one of the most lovable and caring humans I've ever had the pleasure of talking with. So, with all that being said, buckle up and don't forget your booties because this is a fantastic episode. Lastly... This is an ad-free show, so if you'd like to support the Renaissance, hop on over. Just hop on over to renaissancelife.com, R-E-N-A-I-S-S-A-N-C-E, life.com. Yay, we did it, slash support, and you can leave a tip there. A great free way to support the show is to subscribe and leave a review for the Renaissance Life podcast on Apple Podcasts. That's important because it helps others find the show. Also, I've started a few monthly newsletters recently, Considerations, Practices, and Bookaholics. Considerations is about creative inputs, mainly a list of high-quality articles, recommendations, observations, that kind of stuff. Practices is a premium newsletter, but it's about creative outputs. Each month, I'll be diving into a practical lesson or challenge to help you do what you do better. Uh, And last but not least is Bookaholics, which is for book lovers. I know you're not supposed to pick a favorite child, but this might be my favorite. Each month, I'm discussing the nonfiction and fiction books that I'm reading, what I liked, what I disliked, and highlighting my favorites. You can go to renaissancelife.com slash considerations or slash practices or slash bookaholics, or you can find those links on the navigation if you go to the site. So check those out if you're interested. I'm experimenting with using Substack for the newsletters, so if you're familiar with that, you can go find them there as well. You can find the show notes in this episode's podcast feed. You can also go to renaissancelife.com slash Sivers and see the show notes for this episode. You can actually sign up to my free newsletters using your email and get a downloadable PDF of 10 challenges based around the insights that we get into in this episode it's a great way to take what was said and put it into practice in your own life so definitely check that out as well okay okay enough shameless plugging josh on to the main attraction here is derek sivers Derek, welcome to the Renaissance. Thank you for your time today. Thanks, Josh. Okay, so you've got some great interviews out there, particularly your conversation with Tim Ferriss, um, but also other great podcast interviews out there. For those that might not know you or know your work, would you mind giving a short history of your creative journey and a CD baby? Sure.
1: So I was a full-time musician. All I ever wanted was to be a successful musician since I was 14 years old. I went to Berklee College of Music, fiercely focused on being just a musician, and did that for 15 years. Uh, I was a full-time professional musician, made my living just doing gigs, and bought a house with the money I made making music, and it was around that time that I was selling my CD on the internet, but in 1997, when I was doing this, there was nowhere to sell your music online, so... I've always been into doing things myself. So I set up a little store on my band's website to sell my CD. And back then it was a lot of work because PayPal didn't exist yet and Amazon was just a bookstore. So it was hard to do, but I did it. And when I was done, my musician friends said, dude, can you sell my CD through that thing? (laughs) And I said, sure. I never wanted to start a business. I just wanted to be a musician. But my little hobby took off and I called it CD Baby and it became the largest seller of independent music on the web with a quarter million musicians and I had 85 employees working in a warehouse and all of that mess and after 10 years I felt done so I sold the company and I have just been more of an author pop philosopher since. But a few years ago, I wrote a tiny little book called Anything You Want, which you can get for like five bucks and read in an hour, and it tells the story much better than I did here. It's actually a, a great little book. I did it, did it years ago, so now I can kind of like look back with separation. I'm like, wow, this is a good little book. I like this little book. So
0: yeah. It's short and concise, but it's very impactful. I'm a big fan of it.
1: Yeah, it kind of I I decided to share all my mistakes. I think a lot of people just like to <laughs> poof themselves up and look great by talking about what they did right, but I also share all the things I did wrong. So I just kind of condensed everything as much as I could into a little eighty page book. So yeah, that's called
0: Anything You Want. When did you know you wanted to be a musician? What inspired you to learn music? Well, those are two different
1: questions. <laughs> when I was a little kid, I was required to practice music by my mom, like when I was, I think, seven or so. She said she's just going to sign me up for piano lessons. It wasn't an option. And then later when I said I want to quit piano, she said, okay, well, then you have to play some other instrument. You can choose which one, but you got to play something. So I chose clarinet for a number of years, and then it wasn't until I was 14 And I heard the song Iron Man by Black Sabbath. It's like thick, (laughs) distorted, badass, like heavy metal. I was like, yeah, that's (laughs) what I want. So that's when I really got into music. But I think it's kind of cool that it's like by the time I got into music like that intrinsically, I had already been playing scales and arpeggios and chords and whatnot for six years or something. So
0: I was well prepared. Yeah, certainly. I've read that you were influenced early on by someone named Kimo Williams. Can we talk about him? Of course. And how he influenced you? Kimo
1: Williams is one of Kimo. the biggest influences in my life. I, I I wrote the whole story, so anybody listening, if you go to Sivers.org slash Kimo, K-I-M-O, you can read the whole story and see his picture. But in short, he was a music teacher in Chicago, Just a couple months before I went off to Berklee College of Music, I found him in a classified ad and showed up at his doorstep, and he taught me in just four or five lessons, he taught me two years of Berklee School of Music's arranging and harmony and music theory classes, just condensed two (laughs) years into four or five lessons, and it was so intense and awesome, but the lesson I got out of it, the the long-lasting influence, is that he raised my expectations. Like on our very first lesson, he said, I think I can help you graduate Berklee School of Music in two years. He said, you know, most people take four years to do it, but there's no need for that. Like if you know what you're doing, you can you can finish in two years. So I just loved taking that approach to everything. You know, whenever you hear somebody say like, well, it's going to take you ten thousand hours to be great at something, or you know learning learning Chinese will take you ten years. You go,, mm, no, I think if you know what you're doing, you could do it in much less. So it was all about raised
0: expectations. Oh, I love that. I'm curious. do you remember your first time performing in front of a crowd? Yeah, I was terrified, of course. I mean, it was my high school
1: variety show, whatever, but right <laughs> but i've done I've performed over a thousand shows now, and so now I have wow. like extreme stage comfort like for many, many years like for fifteen years of my life, performing on stage was my full time job so now that I've done over a thousand shows, I've noticed that when I'm on stage, it's like, ah, yeah, this is what I do like this is this is my uh, domain, I but when it's I'm in the zone yeah, it's my comfort zone. It's the opposite of stage fright. It's stage comfort. But when I'm in the audience, I don't really know what to do with myself. Like, I'm not used to being on this side of the stage. Like, what do I do with my hands? Exactly. I'm used to being up there, like on the stage. That's, that's, my, that's my jam.
0: I love that. I love that. That's great. What are some more memorable stories that you can recall from performing?
1: Authenticity is inconsiderate this was a hard lesson learned, Uh, don't be yourself. (laughs) When I first started performing, I thought that I should be myself. I went up there being, you know, the kind of person that you're talking to right now, like just a person in a conversation, but that's not what you need to be on stage. Like when you're on stage, you need to perform. You need to give them a show. You need to be generous. It's about the audience. It's not about you and you're authentic how you're feeling in this moment mood you know that's that's not what people pay money to come see they want a show so i learned this the hard way that to not be yourself like when you get up on stage uh, forget authenticity be generous perform give them a show
0: wow that's great it's about the audience not about you
1: right i mean you could say the same thing for even a, a podcast like this right like If I just, I don't know, was in a bad mood and had a bad morning and stubbed my toe right before we hit record, it would be inconsiderate of me to go give a bad interview now because, you know, (laughs) we had agreed upon this time we're hitting record. Uh, To be fair, by the way, I'm I'm not in a bad mood right now. But if I was, (laughs) I I wouldn't, you know, be authentic and lay it on you and the audience. You know, I just it's time to record or it's time to perform, you know, it's being considerate.
0: And the same goes for me. Like I, I want these uh, podcasts to be conversational, but if I'm talking the entire time, I'm not doing my job very well. Right. <laughs> so as anyone listening to this can tell, you are a super ambitious person. How, how do you decide what to focus on?
1: I think it's the intersection of happy, smart, and useful. Mm. So... It took me a few years to realize this, and many years, (laughs) my whole life. (laughs) But I've noticed that you have to have all three, happy, smart, and useful. So what I mean by that is happy is doing what makes you happy. Smart is doing the strategic and smart thing. And useful means being useful to others. So let's look at the combination of these. Because usually we have one or two of the three. And we go ahead and wonder why life is unrewarding. So, so for example, let's combine smart and useful, but not happy. So that's when you're doing something that's rational. Like that's, it's the cliche of the, the strict parents that say, you're going to go to law school. This is what you're going to do. So doing what's smart and useful, but not happy is rational but happiness is the oil in the machine, right? So without it, without the happiness, then it's like the friction kills the engine. If your machine does mm. not have oil, it will not last long. So when people are doing something smart and rational, but they're not happy about it, they're forgetting that you know happiness is a crucial ingredient. But on the other hand, if you combine happy and smart, but forget about useful, then that's like somebody who's like a self-help addict or those people that are searching for passive income. Uh, You can't actually pull yourself up by your bootstraps, right? Like that's an old slang saying. But ultimately, you have to be lifted by those around you, meaning you can't just act like it's only you in this world and you're going to get some passive income somehow and just think about nothing but yourself. You know, the, the people that are going to... Reward you, or the income that's going to come your way has to come from people that are finding what you do useful. So you have to keep your focus on others as well. But if you combine happy and useful, but you're not being smart, that's the cliche of the overeducated charity volunteers. You know, like, so (laughs) you you go and you get a uh, good college degree or a master's degree or something, and you could be making $200 an hour as a lawyer. But instead you say, no, I want to do something useful. And so you fly to Africa and you help carry water to villages. But that's got good intentions, but it's just stupid. Because if you could be making $200 an hour as a lawyer, then you're actually doing a disservice to the world by doing this thing, you know, carrying water to villages, something that somebody else locally can do for $3 an hour without all the stupid airfare and whatnot. Then you're following a lame strategy. You'd be if you really care and you want to help the world. Then you'd go make as much money as you can as a lawyer and use it to pay a hundred local people to carry water to those villages instead of you spending five thousand dollars to fly across the world to carry water somewhere. So that's great intentions, but lame strategies. And finally, the one that my hedonistic friends always recommend is: "They say, hey, man, just." You're overthinking it, man. Just be happy. You know, and that's like the the parable <laughs> of the Mexican fisherman. That's like, you know, the the ambitious businessman comes to a little fishing village and keeps saying to the fisherman, but what about this? You could set up this and the and then why are you doing all of that to be happy? So somebody says, Well, just skip all that, man, and just be happy. But I think the unhappiest people I know are the ones who have just led a hedonistic life and did no planning or preparing for tough times. So I think Mm. you'll have deep regrets if you just guide your life by just doing whatever makes you happy and are not thinking of being useful to others and not thinking of smart strategies,
0: but just being happy, then yeah, that's hedonism and you'll regret it. You know, it reminds me, I've been relearning math fundamentals, and it it sounds like the essence of what you're talking about is focus, well, the the three things, being happy, smart, and useful, they're a multiplication of each other. So focus equals happy times smart times Mm -hmm. useful, because if any, like you were just saying, if any one of them is a zero, then it's just not going to work. Nice. I like that. You're right. There's a phrase that you have. I think it's. I think it's on your blog. It just speaks so much to me. And that's you say something like, "More than anything, I want to make a lot of stuff. I want to make articles, books, websites, music, companies, systems, apps, and especially new ideas." How have you gone about optimizing your life around that, around creativity and learning?
1: Probably by just saying no to the obstacles, <laughs> right? Like. Mm. If you eliminate the obstacles to that, then what's left is that, right? So I say no to hanging out, to watching shows, to drinking, to playing games. I don't have Netflix. Netflix is the enemy. Nintendo (laughs) is the enemy. Steam (laughs) is the enemy. Sorry, that's the gaming Steam, I mean. Yeah, it's all of these things that are the time wasters that most people do and then they try to fit their life's ambitions in between all of that relaxing so instead i don't do any of that stuff i don't sit around on couches hanging out you know and so what's left is i just i wake up at six in the morning and i start creating things all day long and i just do that till i fall asleep at midnight and i sleep for six hours and do it again and that's it that's my life
0: that's a great way to add more time to your life yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: Get rid of you know. everything else. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is kind of on the opposite end, but n- not necessarily. But do you do you have any advice or thoughts around people who are hooked on money, be it they're chasing money or their life revolves around money? Maybe they want to focus on creativity, but they still feel limited by the money that they have or don't have.
1: I don't think it's a bad thing to be hooked on money. I think money's important. Make money, save money. Uh, Money can be a great neutral indicator that you're doing something valuable for the world. So thanks. I mean, it's, it's, I think follow the money can be a good life advice. I mean, if you follow the money, it shows where you're being valuable to the world. If you think of money as a neutral representation of value. So I would recommend if you're asking for advice and thoughts, Read the blog, Mister Money Mustache. He has some great concrete advice and philosophies on reducing your expenses. Uh, Get rid of everything you can, like sell the big house and instead rent a little apartment. And he has these uh, great examples of the freedom that gives. Refuse consumerism. Like instead of an instead of a thousand dollar iPhone, you get an old used hundred dollar Android. You put that nine hundred dollar difference into savings. And then, of course, yes, you notice that that makes your phone less fun, right? But that's part of the point. (laughs) Like, yes, you should make your phone less fun. You should save money and reduce your distractions. (laughs) Live way below your means. Save it all. Have a nest egg. Kind of like I said before, I, I think the unhappiest people I know are the ones who have lived their life in a hedonistic way and said that money wasn't important and so didn't follow a plan that allowed them to make and save money and they're really miserable when they hit a point in their life and they realize that they should have you know so no i think the even my happiest creative friends i know are the ones who who balance making money with making their art i wrote a i wrote a whole long article about this. If you go to Sivers.org slash balance, B-A-L-A-N-C-E, there's a whole article I wrote on this that I'm pretty proud of. It's because I found that the the common thread between the the happiest creative people I knew, no, is they've all balanced making money in one aspect of their life and making their creative art in another aspect of their life. But making sure to never neglect either one of those.
0: I I love that. I'll definitely include that link in the show notes uh, for people. How do you go about learning something new? Find a good book and focus.
1: <laughs> I think, especially when you're learning something new, it's a mental, very uphill struggle at first. So, I stack the environment in my favor. I shut off the phone, turn off the internet completely. Like I'll actually go over to my broadband modem and shut it off. Uh kill all connection to the outside <laughs> world and then I just power through that initial learning curve.
0: I love that you, you just this and a couple other things we've been talking about, you're just cutting yourself off from that temptation. Oh god, yeah.
1: I'm one of <laughs> I mean, I'm not proud of this, but I'm I'm the kind of guy that if there was a box of cookies in my house, it wouldn't last five minutes. (laughs) So uh, I'm the same way. (laughs) So I just have to instead set up my environment so that, you know, I I eliminate the distractions. Right. So after that, after that initial uphill climb, then my next bit of advice for learning something new is to set up uh, or find multiple teaching sources, like say like a video course and three different books. Cause I found, the hard way that different perspectives really help you see something clearly. A few different times I've tried to learn something new from just one book and I've been really kind of stuck on something and I'm like, Oh God, this is just too hard. And then I just grab a different book and I go, Oh, Oh, this is easy. Where well, it's funny because sometimes, you know, chapters one through six of the first book worked really well for me, but then chapter seven just made no sense to me. But then I'll grab a different book and the same thing I get stuck on in chapter seven is explained perfectly clearly in the other book. And now I can return to the first book. And so, yeah, I guess what I'm saying is just having different teachers teach you the same thing, meaning, you know, different sources, it can really help you see something clearly. And then lastly, deliberate practice, where you understand that learning something means you're going to have to not just sit and read about it, but, but do it. And so you put, you put it into practice instead of just, being a sloth and just you know letting yeah. <laughs> words and images go into your eyeballs and you're doing nothing about it.
0: Yeah, that that's my next question cuz I'm definitely a bookaholic like I am <laughs> constantly reading. But do you think it's possible to to spend too much time learning and not enough time practicing?
1: Yeah, I think it's like it's like physical sports or any physical skill, right? Like you 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 don't learn baseball by reading a book about baseball. Right, so even if what you're wanting to learn is computer programming, something that seems like it's just intellectual, like no, you actually have to put your fingers on the keys and go try a bunch of stuff and make a bunch of mistakes. Reading about it isn't the learning. You have to apply what you learn. Um, Trying it is the actual learning. The the doing it is the learning, yeah.
0: Related to-
1: Wait, sorry, actually, before we change the subject, you know, on that point, What's his name? Jason Fried, the founder of Basecamp, had a beautiful article about this. I'd love it if you could find it for your show notes. Sorry, I don't have the exact link, but I think it was like 10 years ago or something in Inc. Magazine. He had a great little article about making money, where he said even since, like, as a teenager or something, he decided he wanted to practice making money. So not just reading about it, but he would do things like find something on eBay, buy it, And then quickly go find a way to write a better description of it, take a better photo of it, describe it better, and sell it for more than he bought it for. And sometimes doing it quick enough that he could just have the seller of the thing ship it directly to whoever bought it from him for more money. (laughs) But that to me is like a wonderful example of like deliberate practice in making money instead of just sitting around and like reading books about how to make more money and thinking, yeah, I, I should, I should make more money. It's like, no, you have to practice it You have to go do it. And ideally the, the more, the better.
0: Jason's, he's a great writer. He reminds me of you a lot because he, he's a very brief and very considerate. <laughs> yes. Brief in a good way, if you know yeah. what I mean. <laughs> so we were talking about no saying no to things you have a great piece on that a lot of people know about, but where, where did the idea of hell yeah or no come from?
1: Hell yeah or no. I was overcommitted. <laughs> I had said a half-assed yes to too many things. <laughs> <laughs> and so I had to raise the bar. So I kind of got this a vision of of myself saying no to almost everything, saying yes to almost nothing. I think at the time I was still kind of trying to make a name for myself, or I just felt like I should have my fingers in a lot of pies, just you never know what thing might hit. But instead I had this vision of how nice it would be instead to, to leave space, to have free time, to have this ideal where my time is not full, so that when something worthy comes along, you can throw yourself into it entirely and have a huge impact, because you have the space in your life to do it. So instead of saying yes to many things, you say no to almost everything and yes to just one thing, rarely and occasionally, so that when you say yes to that one thing, you can just kick ass at it. You can knock it out of the park, as they say. You can do it great and throw yourself entirely and have considerable Energy and time to throw into that one occasional thing that is really worth doing, instead of just a half-assed yes to too many things.
0: Would you mind uh, talking about your philosophy around material possessions, owning things? We got into that a little bit earlier. Yeah, I
1: think. Well, I mean, do you you mean how do you you mean as it relates to like being a,
0: a an artist, or how so? Yeah. One thing that I I guess I struggle with, but trying to decipher what's important for creativity, like what's important to ah, have. yes. Okay. Uh, versus okay. something I just want. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I have a good rule of thumb for this.
1: It's looking at your items, your tools, your stuff, and asking what helps you versus what hurts you. And what I mean by this is the book that you actually read helps you, but the book that you bought but don't read hurts you. Right. The tools that you actually use help you. The tools that you don't use hurt you. And it might sound like I'm being overdramatic when I say hurt you, but I just noticed, for example, I had a bunch of musical instruments here in my main workroom, but I wasn't playing them. Like there was a guitar hanging on the wall in front of me. There was a piano sitting next to me. And every day they were hurting my psyche because every day I would look at them thinking, God, yeah, I really should play more, but I wasn't. So every day my psyche was a little bit torn thinking I should be using that more. I should be doing that more. Right. But I wasn't. So I gave them away. I gave away all my musical instruments to a full-time musician friend of mine. He was thrilled. I was thrilled. And now my psyche is not torn. Now my my main creative space room has nothing in it but my keyboard and a cup of tea. And everything I do is just typing day in and day out. And that's what I really wanted. So I'm no longer torn. So yeah, those tools that you're not using are hurting you.
0: Wow, that's that's fantastic. It's so subtle too. Like you might not even notice that Something is weighing on you. Something right. that you own that you're not using is weighing on you. It took me a couple years
1: to, of of feeling this conflict of these instruments sitting here staring at me, and yeah, I think it. I think it. I had to like. I went to my journal one night, and I was just like, "Okay, how can I start making more music? I really want to put aside time to make more music in my life." And I was, I was sitting there writing about this, and I thought, "Oh man." even if I put aside like an hour a night to work on a song, that's like an hour a night I could be working on finishing my book. <laughs> and I was like, right. man, I think it's pretty clear what my values are now. And it's like, I really just want to finish my book. I really like, I've got other things I want to do. Like the working on music, that was a huge part. That was like a hundred percent of who I was 20 years ago. God, 30 years ago, but it's just not anymore. So I just had to admit that, you know, but there was, there was a kind of a question hidden inside your question where you said that you were kind of concerned about having lots of tools and stuff. I wonder if, if it, if having a collection of tools and stuff violates your self image as a minimalist, then it might help to just, instead of having many tools get one toolbox Interesting. And put all of your tools into one toolbox. Because, you know, if you think about it, like a a handyman shows up with his one and only one trusty toolbox and shows up to fix your thing. And he opens his toolbox and inside there may be 150 little tools. You know, is he now not a minimalist because there are 150 tools in his toolbox? No, of course. it's Those are the tools that he needs. So maybe everything you have is something you need and if you're feeling it violates your self-image as a minimalist, then just put them into one toolbox. And you can just have this little carrying suitcase that's Josh's creative kit. <laughs> and You can say, there, this is my one creative kit. Now you can be both a
0: minimalist and have all your tools. <laughs> that's a great idea. When you think about it, at least as a individual, you can only really use one tool at a time. Right. And some of them might be things that you do occasionally
1: need if you're actually going to use them. But yeah, just kind of use right. that metric of, is this, is this helping me or hurting me? Yeah. But do you really need that third guitar? <laughs> Definitely not.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I want to get into your, your your writing practice. What is your process or philosophy around writing in general? Oh, God. Okay, <laughs> this is just me. This isn't prescriptive for other people. But sure. what I
1: do is first, just privately, I write all of my thoughts on a subject. If there's something I feel like writing about, I'll just open my journal and I'll write and I'll write and I'll write and I'll write for hours and hours and hours, thousands of words. And then I argue against those ideas. I love arguing with myself in writing. I will argue against any conclusion I just came to. I'll explore all these different angles until I'm totally sick of the subject. And then I'll leave it. For a few days or sometimes a few years and then i'll pick it up again and i'll look at it with fresh eyes and i'll repeat all those steps i go back and i argue with what i already wrote down and i'll disagree with it and i'll think how can that not be true like that conclusion that i came to let me let me look at the opposite side of that and eventually i hate how messy all of this has become so what i always end up doing is at some point i say okay this is a mess let me reduce this to an outline. What do I really want to say? If I had to summarize my thoughts on this into a tiny little bullet point outline, what would it be? I'll say, well, really, it's just this, 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 and that. And the conclusion is thus. So then whenever I look at that outline, I say, well, why don't I just say that then? (laughs) And So I take those seven sentences that are my outline, maybe add one or two more sentences if necessary for one of those points to make sense. And then I post it on my site and that's the end result that you see. I end up trashing the rest and just post the outline. So I I recently did a count and I found out that my average article length and the average chapter length in my book is 22 sentences.
0: Wow. Okay. That's That's interesting. That's my process. (laughs) (laughs) I really like the idea of arguing against your own ideas. That's something that I have not done, but I'm definitely going to try that out. Oh, it's so, that's the best part. Because that's when you actually change your mind. Right. Hitting different angles, different perspectives. Yeah. Do you think there's anything that most writers get wrong when they're writing? Mm,
1: I think the only wrong thing is to not do it. (laughs) You know, like, I, I mean, everybody's got their own style, right? my heroes are writers. My friends are writers. We all have very different styles. That's why, you know, I, I prefaced that last thing by saying, okay, this is, I'm not prescribing this for you, but like for for my style, I like being really, really succinct. But a friend of mine is Mark Manson, who wrote The the Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. And he and I just totally disagree on that. He really likes writing long articles and enjoys the more conversational style of indulging in that. And whereas I'm sitting here trying to whittle everything down to the 11 necessary sentences and just post (laughs) it like that, you know? So no, I think there's, uh, there's nothing that most writers get wrong, except just not doing it enough. If I can think of two tips I could share, one would be to try imitating your heroes. Like if there's a writer you like, just sit down and try to imitate that writer Exactly. Because you'll never sound exactly like them. So you don't really need to worry about that. But yeah, try imitating your heroes. If you love Seth Godin's writing, sit down to try to write like Seth Godin. If you love Mark Manson's writing, sit down and try to write something like Mark Manson. You'll be better because of it, you know. And my other tip is to be a ruthless editor. So I think I'm kind of a half-assed writer, but a really ruthless editor. So (laughs) I highly recommend that you wait a week after you write something and just leave it for a few, you know for at least a week and then come back to it now with some emotional detachment and save a copy of it and save a copy called you know long version and then but then take the other copy and chop everything possible out of it Like, look at and leave only what can't be removed. Just be absolutely ruthless in your editing. Chop it as much as it can be chopped. And uh, yeah, those are my two bits of
0: advice. You recently did an experiment of doing a daily blog for 30 days in a row. How was that experience? The conclusion I came to is that I prefer the agreement
1: with my audience where I only put out something that needs to be said something that's worthy of their time. Right? So it used to be that I would only post something like once every month or two. And then I would tell my mailing list, people who have subscribed saying, let me know when you've posted something, I would send them an email saying, okay, here's a new article. And I would get like 400 comments on a new article. Once I started posting every single day, I found out I was only getting like three or four comments. I think like I just got the impression it was just too much for people. So I thought nobody likes when a a nonfiction book is like 300 pages when it really could have been an article. I think that's inconsiderate to the reader because the author was trying to please the publisher's expectations instead of pleasing the audience, right? The publisher says we want a 300 page book on this because that's what it's going to take to, put it in a physical bookstore. So the author pads it with another 250 pages of examples when really that could have just been a good article.
0: Yeah. And no no offense to writers like that, but when the headline is all that you need, you know, I don't know, is it really necessary for the 300 pages following? (laughs) Exactly. And same with
1: the dumb sequel to a movie that shouldn't exist, but the directors, the producers did it just for the money. I think it's a waste Great. of the audience's time. Like, yes, maybe you had some kind of contractual obligation to the studio, but don't make that our fault. Like, now you've just wasted our time because we liked the first movie, so we go see the second one, and we go, oh, like, that really should not have existed. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I understand while having an obligation to yourself to write daily is good for creativity... I think it can be bad for the audience. If you're a great writer, if you're, you know, Seth Godin, for example, his daily blog at Seth's.blog is is not bad for the audience. He's uh he's a master, but I found that my daily output was was probably inconsiderate. I was fulfilling an obligation to myself instead of to the audience. That said, I haven't posted anything in months as of today (laughs) what is this the august april 6th i mean i think it's april 6th today so i haven't posted anything since december right now so i think i need to find my own uh, balance in between those two extremes
0: and it goes back to your process of digesting an idea and arguing against it and coming up with the essence of it yeah seth is great who knows how many blogs he's written he's done that for Years now, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yep.
1: he was. You know, I'm such a fan of his. I mean, he's kind of a friend too, and and uh, he just says over and over and over again to anyone who'll listen that one of the best things you can do is to put something out into the world daily. He really swears it's one of the best things he's ever done. So I did it mostly because Seth kept saying to, but right, I I don't know personality style. I tend to really throw myself into one thing at a time. So I found out that when I was writing the daily article. I wasn't really getting anything else in my life done. Again, maybe I can address that directly someday. Maybe I can find a way to compartment off my writing and do it, you know, post something in the first two hours of the day. And then, I don't know. But yeah, I I like this agreement instead where when I post something publicly, it means that I, I couldn't not do it. You know, this has to be posted. I'd rather that be the, the unspoken
0: agreement between me and my audience. Absolutely. You know, it's been almost three years, two two and a half years of doing a daily post. And for me, the reason I started doing it was because I wasn't writing, but I really wanted to write. So it just gave me a good excuse, if you will, or a reason to build momentum to focus on writing and focus on thinking.
1: Yes. Momentum is a great word. I'm so glad you said that. Yeah, I think that's key. It's it's momentum more than anything else. That's awesome.
0: So what are some big takeaways you've had from your book, Anything You Want?
1: Oh God. I think my only main <laughs> takeaway is that I can write a book in 10 days. <laughs> oh uh, wow. Well, I
0: had no idea you wrote it in 10 days. Yeah. Good.
1: It was a tiny little book. Seth. I, I never wanted to do a book. People had been asking me for years, and I said, no, no interest. I'm just doing blog posts. I'm good. But then Seth Godin called me up one day and said, Derek, I'm starting a publishing company and I want you to be my first author. So I said, okay. <laughs> so, and Seth calls. Yeah. How could you say no to that? And so I, I believe I haven't looked at it in a while, but I believe the dedication in the front of the book just says, uh, this is for Seth because without him, it wouldn't have existed. I did it only because he asked. I just put it together for him in 10 days and he published it a week or two later and it was good to go. And it's funny, later I met authors that had you know, been working on one book for years. And I was like, oh, really? Why didn't you just do one in two weeks? It's just it's not that hard.
0: You, you built that muscle up with your blog, though.
1: I guess so. Yeah. I mean, granted, two thirds of the book were articles that I had already written in the past. And then the other third, stories from my past. So it was easy to come up with stories from my past. In the same way, it's easy for me to still just, you know chat over a drink telling you something that happened in my past that's a lot easier than somebody saying hey what's the meaning of life you know that's not quite so easy so right. <laughs> yeah sure enough my my next book is called how to live and sure enough that's taking much longer than just telling some story from my past
0: yeah so you're writing how to live you also have two other books that you're working on i believe
1: no sorry i only really work on one at a time the reason you see all three listed on my site is just I haven't released them yet, but I'm going to very soon. So Your Music and People is my next book that is directed at musicians, but is also for any creative types. It takes that idea of the hell yeah or no that we already talked about and finds a general theme about what's worth. And then, but that was pretty easy to put together. That was mostly a collection of my best articles. I'm kind of just saving people from Clicking a hundred times on my site, I just you know, gather a bunch of my best posts into one book. So that's what Hell Yeah or No is. But the third one is the one that I'm still writing right now. And that is How to Live. And that's uh, super exciting. It's like 25 deliberately one-sided argument around pick and one conclusion. But
0: I'm still working on that, so I don't have much to say about that. Sorry. Oh, no, no worries. I'm excited about all three of them, so they basically they're in different stages finished editing, research, and then writing
1: exactly yeah in fact if i if I were to finish building the e commerce thing on my site today, well, then I'd put up the next book for sale today. so that one's ready to go so oh, yeah cool. they'll they'll be done very soon.
0: Very cool. I'd like to get into some like general like creativity questions. What character traits do you think makes a great artist or musician or? creative person
1: surprise more than anything i think great yeah great art should surprise um if you're not surprising me if you're not surprising the audience then everything you're doing just fits in with their expectations and they go "Hmm, all right it's all the best moments even think about those movies where somebody, you know, watches a movie and then tells you afterwards, like, oh my God, you need to see this. It's because something in it surprised them. The plot surprised them. The twist surprised them. Do you remember that, you know, the movie Sixth Sense? When that came out, everybody's like, oh my God, dude, you got to see this. You have to see this. It's because it had that great surprise at the end. And even musically, if somebody does something musically that's, that's not surprising you in any way, well, then that's just smooth jazz or something (laughs) you know like smooth jazz is aimed not to surprise it's supposed to be background music but yeah i think all great art needs to surprise you in some way
0: related to that you were talking about performance earlier surprise is not necessarily something that surprises the artist but it's a deliberate thing
1: ideally you should surprise yourself in the making. But yeah, there have been times when you know exactly how you came to this conclusion that you're about to present. So it's not actually surprising to you. You know, like musically, you can take one ingredient over Debussy orchestra piece and combine it with whatever punk song you know and mix those two things and do something that might be surprising to the audience but it's not surprising to you cuz you know how you got to it that can be fine it can be a a carefully crafted thing like the way that script writers i think probably have a little basket of techniques they can use to surprise the audience and it's not actually a surprise but ideally it's fun when you're creating something and you're surprising yourself along
0: the way It reminds me of Winston Churchill. Supposedly, he kept a lot of witty phrases in a basket to pull out in times of need. (laughs) Nice. What are your thoughts on luck? Do you think it's possible to improve your chances of being lucky?
1: Well, being prepared is a given, Mm -hmm. you know, like being good at what you do. That's, you know, we all know that. But after that, then I think it's frequency, So if you think of, assuming that we're talking about something rare and unlikely happening to you, if you use the metaphor of uh, like you've got a handful of six dice, each with the numbers one through six on them, and what you really want is to roll six sixes, (laughs) well, then the only way to do it is to roll the dice as often as possible, like not once a month, but like every minute. Until you roll six sixes. So expand that metaphor into whatever you're doing in in your life that you want to be lucky at. You have to do lots and lots and lots of it. Like try something every single day, ideally every hour. Yeah, you have to do a lot of it. It's all frequency if you want luck to strike you. With the given of, you know, of course you have to be prepared and be good at what you do or whatever, but then otherwise it's just frequency.
0: I don't know, like casinos as an analogy, you hear about the people who hit the jackpot, but you don't hear about how many times they have gone to the casino. (laughs) Like you don't hear the history. (laughs) (laughs) So you, how do you go about building a personal thriving community of creative friends around you?
1: (laughs) Uh, Trick question. I don't. (laughs) Really? Um, (laughs) I mean, And I'd be curious to hear your, uh, somebody else answer that, that does, but no, I've, I think I've just kind of made the lifestyle choice of solitary creation over community. I mean, I have some friends spread around the world that are also creative people, but no, for the most part, everything I do is just absolutely alone. And I like it that way. It's funny, you know, even as a programmer, I mean, I really enjoy programming and people ask me why I don't, collaborate or as a musician as a musician I often loved playing all the instruments myself I would just go into a studio by myself any sound you hear was just me layering instruments on top of instruments and uh, people told me I should collaborate and I thought well we don't tell painters to collaborate we don't tell authors to collaborate so why is it that we say that some things should be collaborative and other things shouldn't uh, so, no, I've just True. I've just approached everything I do as non-collaborative, and I like it
0: that way. Would you say that your creative work, uh, your writing, draws a bunch of creative folks in t- to reach out to you? Mm. I
1: get the impression that the people I hear from in the world are a pretty representative mix of creative and not creative people, and that's okay. I mean, a lot of my friends are also not creative uh and you know, it's self-described not creative, so no, I don't know. It's I, you know, Some of my most fascinating friends are people that wouldn't describe themselves as creative, but just conversationally, they're very empathetic or whatever, and and uh, or they see the big picture very well. And so, I get inspiration from people that even if they're not writers or artists or are typically creative.
0: What advice would you give to someone who is pursuing creative work?
1: Oh, God. Sorry, I don't mean to sound like I'm punting. My next book called Your Music and People. The subtitle is Creative and Considerate Fame. It's really, the whole book is the answer to that question. Oh, perfect. So if you don't (laughs) mind me punting to the book, it's, I mean, it's written to musicians, but it's really meant to be read metaphorically by any creative person when my when my next book comes out which is any old day now your music and people go get that and that is my
0: advice to someone pursuing creative work great (laughs) so who or what inspires your work or do you is there any place or person you go to for inspiration I get inspired by ideas
1: probably the common thread is if it's something that is in theory, that I want to see if it'll work in practice. Mm. I think that's a common thread even going back to songwriting many years ago for me, or writing articles, or even programming. It's like everything starts with a theory of something like, hmm, I wonder what will happen if I combine this with this. That might be cool. Well, now I've kind of got a theory that extrapolating that idea in this way will be cool. And so now I have to see if that will actually be cool in the real world. It's not so much like a who or a what, it's just, it's in theory ideas that I wanna see if they'll work in practice. But I've also noticed that I get really, really inspired by serving others. I never would have predicted this But if I just look back at my past actions and when I was the most like massively in flow in the zone with my work, like just, you know, working on one thing from 7 a.m. to midnight every single day, it's when my audience tells me something that they want or need. And now I'm serving them. When I'm in that position, I will just like work till I drop every day to provide. (laughs) <laughs> for their wants or needs. Whereas on the other hand, if I'm doing something that's just only for myself, well then, you know, my my motivation waxes and wanes. But when I'm serving others, I am completely driven. So I guess you would count that as inspiration.
0: If you can think of one, can you think of an example?
1: Yeah, just a few years ago, um, I have a, a now page on my website, right? So a few years ago, I just thought I was actually inspired. Oh, you know what? I've never said this publicly. It was inspired by my friend, Benny Lewis. Well, I don't know if I'm using the word friend loosely. Acquaintances. Benny and I have met a couple times, but I love his work. Codename, The Irish Polyglot. He's fluent in many, many languages. He wrote a book called Fluent in Three Months and has a blog called Fluent in Three Months. And I blurbed the back of his book because I'm such a super fan. But I also care about Benny personally. But he's one of those guys that like, we just don't talk that often. We talk like every couple of years, but I often wonder how Benny is doing. And so I wished that there was like a page that I could go to, to find out what Benny's up to and social media feeds don't count because it's like, okay, Hey, look where I am today. Or here's what I ate today. But that doesn't give me like (laughs) the zoomed out. Like, yeah, but how are you? You know? So, right. Inspired by my wish that that existed for someone else, I decided to add it for myself. So if you go to Sivers.org slash now, you will always see what's up with me now, what I'm working on or what's on my mind or how I'm feeling. Like it's the answer. If if a friend who hadn't talked to me in months or years were to wonder how I'm doing, Sivers.org slash now is the answer. So I had that on my own page for a while. A guy named Greg noticed it thought it was cool and added a now page to his site and tweeted it. So then I retweeted going, oh, cool. Look, somebody else has added a now page. And within one day, like eight more people added a now page to their site because of my tweet and within... Three more days, like, you know, 30 more people added a now page. And then somebody said, like, dude, you should make a collection of all these people with now pages. And I thought, yeah, you're right, I should. So I made nownownow.com, which was a collection of people with now pages. And then I announced that. And pretty soon I had, like, you know, 1,500 people that were adding now pages to their site. And I wanted to build a system that, you know, and like, oh, my God, it just became, like, my absolute driving fascination. For, like, a month, I did nothing but work on nownownow.com and making some system where I could automatically every hour build a thing that tweets out somebody's now page in a way that for me to manage them in the database and I was more driven than I had felt in months because people were asking me for this thing whereas most of what I spend my time doing are things that I just feel like doing but nobody's asking for it and that's when I noticed that it's like wow what a massive difference like when I'm doing something that people are t- telling me that they want or need
0: I'm just like, that's, I've never felt such drive. That's the ultimate. You know, that, that, the now page, that's like the perfect example of your, one of your Ted talks, I think is building a movement or creating a movement. <laughs> right, right. It's like, perfect. What are your thoughts on failure, on success? How, how do you view failure or, and when it comes up, how do you handle it?
1: Hmm. I think it, changes all the time i think we have phases in our life where success might mean making lots of money and then phases in our life where success might mean doing nothing and having total freedom so i think i think success is not some big broad meta thing but it's rather really specific to your current situation and you need to always keep that updated for yourself so that you're aware of what current situation you're in. You're not following your old expired recipe for success, which, yeah, 10 years ago, you might have set out to make a lot of money, but you need to be honest and ask yourself again right now, wait, is this, is this still what I want? What would success be for me right now? Because it might be freedom. It might be doing nothing. It might be just learning a lot or reading a lot or raising a kid or whatever it might be. And then it might switch again, or it probably will switch again someday. So maybe even though 10 years ago you said, nope, money doesn't matter to me. Well, now maybe the situation has changed and money does matter to you again. So that's success Hmm. and failure to me. is very context specific for the
0: moment. I, I like that idea. And that's not really something that I've thought deliberately about, like success changes as you get older.
1: Yeah, just, yeah, with time. I mean, your situation changes. Your needs change.
0: Interesting. If you could master three skills instantly, what would they be? Oh! Oh. It's a random question, but... I
1: love it. Master three skills instantly. That's like like the Matrix, right? Like, I know how to fly a helicopter now. Whoa. Okay, so, all right. Number one. I would love to be fluent in every language on earth because language itself is intrinsically interesting to me. And I'd also find it interesting to get to know and feel connected to uh, people all around the world. Number two, mastering entrepreneurship would be fascinating. Like I don't even know, even know if that's possible, but Hey, You're giving me the the genie in the lamp question, so you're getting the genie in the lamp answer. So mastering (laughs) entrepreneurship would be fascinating because that would mean that I could create a useful, sustainable, and profitable business every month. Like that would be net positive for the world. (laughs) I'm not even that interested in entrepreneurship right now, like at this stage in my life. But if you suddenly, you know, gave me the ability to master entrepreneurship, it would... Uh, instantly become fascinating to me again. And number three would be mastering willpower or discipline because that would mean that I would always do the right thing whether I felt like it or not. And I think that would be both healthy and considerate.
0: Those are fantastic answers. (laughs) Thanks, that was a great question. That's fun. What are some of the best lessons your closest friends have taught you
1: one friend of mine is a real role model of empathy empathy okay and but another friend is a real role model of discipline and another role another friend of mine is like a real role model for seeing the big picture so i don't think i have like a specific lesson, like a little tale to tell you. I think it's more like my friends are ongoing inspiration and guidance. I think takeaway tale, it's more like a um well, I was gonna say a lighthouse, but isn't a lighthouse meaning you shouldn't go there, but something like that. Something that they're kind of a a light that that draws me towards their example. I their role
0: models to me. I'm trying to think of example what's the the tractor beam is that star trek Do you... yeah or is it yeah I, I guess in star wars where they like star they pull, War, yeah. they pull the millennium falcon into the oh, the tractor yeah. Beam. right yeah Good one. Tractor Something like beam. that yeah <laughs> what what has uh becoming a dad taught you about life so far in the world i don't know if
1: it's much as i don't think it's life lessons as much as just a parenting lesson okay is that Parenting for me is like meditation. I was surprised at this. I I just found out that parenting works best if I let go of my own thoughts. And I let go of my plans. And I let go of time frames. Clocks no longer exist. I let go of expectations and everything. And I'm just present with him. And like really just present in every single moment. So that even if he says, let's play this game, and I say, okay, and then 10 seconds later, he wants to do something else. I don't want to be the guy to say, no, wait, you said, let's play this game. I'm going to hold you to that. No way. Just like, just roll with the (laughs) moment. So I think the lesson is that if I want to enter his world, I need to let go of my own. Uh, So that's been the biggest lesson learned so far. He's only eight years old. You know, if if he's a teenager, I'd have a different answer.
0: (laughs) I'm not a father, but uh, expectations, I imagine, is quite difficult because you, you want them to do well. Right. But you don't necessarily want to push yourself onto them.
1: Yeah. I mean, God, we're just filled with expectations, even in any given moment. Expectations like you should be doing this, you should be doing that. Right Or, you know, but it's just, especially at at his age, I mean, just from age zero to eight so far, it's like the the biggest lesson was just, just letting go of all of that and just being present. That just helps me enter his world so we can play together.
0: That does sound very meditative. What are some decisions you've made that, I mean, we've talked about a few of them, but that have made you into who you are today? Hmm.
1: If I were to point to some big decision, I think that would belittle the equal importance of little decisions. So I'm going to say all of them, meaning like even if if I would have stayed in my hometown with my high school sweetheart and my pot-smoking friends, I would have <laughs> ended up a very, very different person from right. who I am today. On the other hand, when I was full- time musician, you know, if I would have kept doing gigs instead of answering the world's call and starting c d baby, you know by the way, you know, I used now 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 as an example, but of course, c d babys my other kind of parallel example to that where c d baby wasn't something I wanted to do it It was something that like my now 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 story, like suddenly the world was beating down my door, saying, "Please do this, please, we need this, we need this." and I went, okay, um, but if I had just kept doing gigs. I'd be in a very, very different place in my life now with different values. I think that's been a um, huge life lesson is that our situation determines our values,
0: right? Right. Like,
1: again, you and I are talking here on April 6th, and I think a lot of people had pretty different values three months ago before they had ever heard of COVID or Corona anything, (laughs) Certainly. They were living a different life. And a lot of people have suddenly different values now. Uh, when everything's going really well for you in life, you you don't give one thought to protecting the downside. You just focus on how you can maximize your upside even more. And as soon as things start going really badly, you go, oh, well, I'm not going to worry about the upside at all anymore. I have to just focus all my attention on protecting the downside. Right? So right. that's just a you know, a clear example right now of how our changing situation completely changes our values. Like if you think of values as some kind of stack of blocks in one of those visual metaphors, like, well, which which value is on top? Which value is down below? Well, then as soon as your situation changes, you've got to rearrange those blocks because suddenly something is more important. So since even tiny decisions like should I stay in my hometown? Well, I guess that's not that decision, but those tiny decisions we make every day change our situation, and then your situation changes your values. So, I'd say that every tiny little decision you make along the way completely changes your situation, and therefore your values, and therefore who you are.
0: Certainly, yeah. Do you have any unconventional values or philosophies that you? Live by? <laughs> well, they all seem pretty
1: normal to me. I don't know. Uh, I live by. Uh, there's, you know, a rule of thumb for me is whatever scares you, go do it. I've just been living by that way since I was a teenager. It was like both in the the micro and the macro, you know, just on a tiny little level. If, if going up to that beautiful stranger and saying hello scares you, oh, well, scares me. So time to do it. Doing the big terrifying thing scares you you notice that it scares you and that says you should do it and I guess the the obvious conclusion to that thought is you do, you're do you doing what scares you because once you do it it doesn't scare you anymore so if you keep following that compass then
0: things in life don't scare you love it certainly hard to do but uh, I, <laughs> w- well worth it every time that I've stepped into my discomfort zone if you will I've never really regretted it yeah, exactly. I'd like to talk about, and you've written about, it, but, written about it, but your 2007, and related to that, your experiences facing setbacks and failures in particular, if you're open to talking about it.
1: I think the, the takeaway lesson is that you always have to focus on the process, not the outcome. Meaning, a bad decision that leads to a good outcome is still a bad decision. (laughs) Right. You can't say that you, you can't justify it. Like, well, it turned out. Okay. So I guess it was good. No, it was still a, you made a bad decision. You got really lucky that you had a good outcome, but on the flip side, then a good decision that had the unfortunate outcome, a bad outcome is still a good decision. You can't regret the action and I guess a good decision is one that you you put good thought into. You used the best of your intelligence at the time. You weren't being rash or emotional or stupid. You made the best decision you could. And if the outcome of that decision is not what you wanted it to be, well, then that's just feedback. It's not failure. So I think if you focus on improving your decisions, uh, then it's just, you know, Controlling what you can control because you can't control the outcome. So yeah, 2007 was a real shit year for me. Some of it was made by some bad decisions. But um, yeah, I I don't see it as a failure. I just kind of say like, okay, well, now I see why that was a dumb decision. And that was a dumb decision. And now I can learn from that and not do that
0: again. How have you changed your perspective on things the last year? Oh god. Changed- <laughs> <laughs> oh god.
1: Uh I th- 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 everything. Um <laughs> I mean, I changed my perspective every week at least. I mean, ideally. Yeah, sorry, it's funny, like I, I think my brain just burst a bit when I tried to think of how I've changed in a year. <laughs> So instead, okay, you know, I will answer with something that just came up yesterday, because it's still, uh, it's not even, well, it's just lunchtime here. So I haven't had my perspective changed massively yet today. But yesterday afternoon, I was taking a long walk. I'm, I'm living in Oxford, England now, and luckily there are big empty fields, so I can be self-isolating. I could put a, an audio course on in my headphones and go on a long walk with no people around. So I've been listening to an audio course on linguists taught by John McWhorter from The Great Courses. And it's so, so, so good. And he was teaching these really cool things about the Cantonese language and the Bantu languages of East Africa. And it made me really sad that I wasn't traveling or living someplace massively multicultural. Like I used to live in Singapore and suddenly was like making me really miss traveling and living somewhere super multicultural like that but then i started questioning that see that's you know like we said i don't know half an hour ago this idea of whenever you have something that you think is a true fact it's just so healthy to question it and just put a question mark on it and so i i questioned that and i realized that much of traveling makes you think that you're learning and expanding, but it's really low reward. Hmm. Like booking activities, booking travel, booking lodging, sitting on transportation, whether it's planes or trains or buses, dealing with the logistics. A lot of transactions. Right, a lot of travel is just all that junk. But then you finally get to the place. So you get to the place and you're walking around. And yes, you're seeing people in a bustling marketplace, or you're seeing people riding camels or harvesting rice or whatever, but you could have seen that in a video. And yes, it's like happy visceral fun to be in it instead of seeing it on a video, but is that really personal growth? Right? Like... If you remove the stories that you tell yourself and you can say, Hey, I've been to Myanmar. And you could tell your friends and you could tell yourself, Hey, now I've been to Myanmar. But that's not amazing in itself. Like any idiot can go somewhere. (laughs) So, what really changes you in travel? To me, it's learning about a place and most importantly, talking with people there. So, what would be a better learning, growing experience. Would it be, option one, spending eight hours planning, spending 12 hours traveling, and then spending 20 hours walking around looking at things? Or, option two, spending eight hours reading about a place, 12 hours studying the language, and then 20 hours having phone conversations with people in that place? So that's that's huge
0: that's uh, massive. yeah it's
1: huge and i think objectively also not flying around the world is better for the environment so maybe all in all traveling your mind instead of traveling your body is objectively better Yeah um, you're actually the first person i've told about this that was just like my oh, wow. thought yes i wrote it in my diary and Haven't talked to a friend yet this morning, so you're the first person I'm telling. But since you asked what I've changed my perspective on this year, you're getting (laughs) yesterday's answer. Hopefully, I will have another change of perspective on something today.
0: That's perfect. My tendency is to go to the beach or something and bring like 10 books with me and just spend the entire time reading. But I guess I could just do that anywhere. Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you'd be doing the world a favor to not, you know, fly to India to read some books. (laughs)
0: <laughs> and related to books, are there any books that you reread or catch yourself thinking about often?
1: That's a two-part question with two different answers. I almost never reread a book. Really? Okay. Be- yeah, because I take notes the first time I read it with the specific goal of never having to read the book again. <laughs> so <laughs> I aim to extract its ideas the first time I read a book. I underline or circle every sentence or paragraph that I find interesting and want to reflect on more. And then, then I really don't care about the book itself. But yes, to answer your the second part of the question, I think often about its ideas. I, I have them in my notes now, and so I take time to reflect on its ideas and ideally apply them to my life. If you go to Sivers.org slash book, just singular, sivers.org slash B-O-O-K, you can see all of my extracted ideas from over 250 something. I've been doing this since 2007 is when I started. I actually read tons of books before 2007, but ten- 2007 is when I realized that I was forgetting everything I had read in my past books because I didn't take notes. And so I said, okay, from this point on, I remember it was July 2007. I said, from now on, I'm going to start taking notes on every book I read, and so yeah, I have since. So I've got 250 the notes from 250 books up at sivers.org/slash/book. But counterintuitive, the fact that I don't really care about books, I just care about the little extracted ideas inside of them.
0: Do you do you go about rereading your notes? Oh, like yeah, all, the yeah, all the time. Yeah, yeah. So
1: that's the big idea. It's like once I have it in a text file, I'll refer to. The notes often every time I'm facing some kind of decision or dilemma or just want to, you know, think more on a subject back, and that's why I like having them in simple text files, as I can go search for a word like persistence or discipline or surprise, (laughs) and I could just find everywhere where the idea of say persistence has been mentioned in all 250 books, and I can find you know 120 mentions of it across 78 books, and sit there and review all of my extracted ideas on the subject of persistence. And then when bathing in those, I can come up with my own.
0: You have your own little personal internet of insights. Yes. Are you a fan of fiction
1: books? For fiction, I prefer films. I think I spend so much of my life reading words. And I mean, like, it's kind of all I do all day. Like I wake up at 6 a.m. and I just kind of type and read all day long until I fall asleep at night. So... When it comes to fiction, I would much rather watch a film, you know, and just like, yeah, or listen to an audiobook, just close my eyes and listen. Right. Or I really enjoy the multimedia experience of films. Roger Ebert made me appreciate that. If you go to rogerebert.com and you search for what he calls the great movies, he's got wonderful essays on so many movies calling your attention to visual details and kind of explaining the language of cinematography and how, you know, notice that as we grow more, more distant from this character, that that he he's filmed more distantly from the camera and things like that are explaining how color scheme represents the mood of the character and all these things that just give so much more richness. That um, Yes, I understand that when people try to turn a book into a movie that they say, oh, well, the, the, the movie wasn't as good as the book. And I get that, but... Movies as their own art form, I think, are actually still underappreciated.
0: And you said Roger Ebert?
1: Yes, R-O-G-E-R-E-B-E-R-T dot com. He died a few years ago, but he was a master at writing in-depth, wonderful essays about almost every single movie that's ever come out since the 60s or something. Just, I highly recommend, especially if you're all quarantined and you're watching stupid crap on Netflix, instead use your Netflix subscription to go through what he calls the 200 greatest movies ever made. And for each one, watch the film, even if it's black and white and looks like something you wouldn't like, just trust him. (laughs) If he says that there's the greatest movies ever made, it's for a good reason. Watch one of those great films. And then when you're done, read his essay about it. And you'll have, you do that a few times and you'll have a whole new appreciation for the art of cinema
0: i am definitely going to check that out do you are there any favorites you have on his list uh not yet i haven't done them all okay. <laughs> i think i've gone through over half of them but
1: yeah 200 is a lot of films so yeah so instead of answering uh your, your favorite question i'll just say the most recent is yeah there was a film called ace in the hole that I'm just thinking okay. of because it was just a couple of weeks ago it was one of those ones that was on his list but when I looked at it it was like some old cheesy 1950s you know where everybody talks like this and like hey Sam why don't Jeez. you come over here I'm like <laughs> this doesn't look like my kind of film but I'm like you know come on trust the guy's judgment so I watched it and I was like oh man that was really good that was okay. really really good so yeah now I'm just I'm going to trust his judgment even if it stylistically looks like
0: the kind of thing I wouldn't like yeah I'm definitely going to check that out A couple of random questions. What songs do you sing when you're alone? Be in the shower or in your car? Uh, Again, I can only answer for lately. Sure. Amber Rubarth,
1: A-M-B-E-R, R-U-B-A-R-T-H, has a song that I think is called You Will Love This Song. She's a songwriter writing a song to her uh, her ex saying, you always told me what ingredients you like a song to have, so now I'm going to write a song with the ingredients that you like. (laughs) Because... I know you'll think that's hot. And yeah, I've been singing that song nonstop lately. It's so good.
0: Perfect. Uh, Are there any other new artists or bands that you've been digging recently?
1: I've never been into bands, but I'm listening to Debussy. I just, I still have not gotten sick of Debussy. I just can't get enough of Debussy's orchestration. And there is a Pakistani singer, I think from the seventies named, I think it's uh, Avita Parveen or Amita Parveen. P-A-R-V-E-E-N. It was just like somewhere in a compilation. And, uh, oh God, it's great. It's one of those things where it's like, it it sounds like a Bollywood soundtrack. Like it's kind of, it's recorded too hot. It's like a little distorted, which makes it sound like it's coming through a FM radio, but it's like, God, these melodies, you know.
0: Anyway,
1: a, a Vita Parveen or a Vita Parveen, something like that. I've been listening to that nonstop lately.
0: I love it. It sounds like it has some character to it.
1: Oh, it's just she's just got a wonderful voice, and I just, uh, yeah. Speaking of surprise, I really appreciate any art forms that are outside of my usual realm of what I know, because then just. Every listen is like a a nice surprise. You know, I didn't grow up with with melodies like that. So the melodies surprise me. Whereas I just, I can't listen to another rock band of bass, drums, guitar, you know. (laughs) You just, I just know it too well. There's nothing left to surprise me there. So,
0: yeah. Yeah, I get that. In one word, how would you, how would your best friend describe you? In one word? probably just have to say Derek. (laughs) I I
1: think there's such a thing as oversimplification, right? So if you try to reduce a person to a word or even a sentence, you're actually creating (laughs) error, not insight. Somebody asked me once, if because I write so succinctly, does that mean I think that the truth is succinct? And I said, no, 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 no. Bumper stickers are succinct, but the truth (laughs) is very nuanced. I, I never claim that my short little articles of 22 sentences are the truth. No, the truth always has way more nuance than that. I'm just creating, I'm putting out one tiny little idea in 20 sentences that you can take and spin for your own need. But no, hopefully my friend would not have a way to describe me in one oversimplified word. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. Great answer. You, you've mentioned you enjoy doing things yourself. And you can really see that with your journey, and there's like I don't know boldness that you carry yourself with where do you where does that come nice. from hmm
1: where do I get my boldness
0: um... yeah like speaking of like chemo for example like how did you what gave you the gumption or the the will to just you know go? find his address, go to his house, you know, or call him up. Uh, I think it's probably just from experience, finding that bold
1: actions usually pay off, especially since most people don't do them. It puts you on that road less traveled, you know? So, yeah, doing the bold thing is almost al- almost always worth it. I mean, actually, no, maybe, <laughs> maybe I'd say it's, it is always worth it because then even if it doesn't go well, well, now you've got an interesting tale of something that happened when you took a bold action, even if it didn't work out great, at least you, you did it. Yeah. I think it's probably more of a decision, like at any given moment when you're faced the different options for what you could be doing, usually the one that's the most exciting or the most interesting or intriguing is the one that you would call bold. So um, I guess I just keep doing those things.
0: Makes sense. Yeah. So I, I want to respect your time. We're going on an hour and thirty minutes here. So last last two questions, and these are for uh, the audience. I mean, this entire thing's for the audience, obviously. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but these two. Now forget the rest. Those are we <laughs> for Josh. These two are for you, baby. <laughs> the last hour and thirty minutes doesn't matter. But what's what's one question you would recommend? to people listening to this, a, a parting question or a takeaway question from what we've been talking about.
1: A question for them to ask themselves, you mean? Yes. Yeah. Ooh. Take something that you think of as true, like my example with, you know, I want to travel. Sorry, that might have actually got lost in the story. It's like what's um, something I've changed the perspective on. I started out with this strong feeling of, I want to travel. I really miss traveling. I really desperately want to travel. So that you could say that that was a, a fact. So at, at 2.32 in the afternoon, it was a, a pure fact that I want to travel. But then I spent five minutes questioning it. You know, it's like, wait, do I really want to travel? Why do I want to travel? What's the real result that I want from it? What do I get out of traveling? What's the biggest reward from traveling? Is that necessary to actually travel to get, and, you know, by 2.33 in the afternoon, I had come to the conclusion that I don't want to travel, <laughs> that I could see how that previous statement was now wrong. I would probably actually get more out of life if I didn't fool myself into thinking I was traveling just because I did a bunch of logistics and sat on a a long plane flight and now I'm sitting here in (laughs) Istanbul looking at the marketplace. This doesn't actually mean I'm learning anything. Whereas if I were to read three books about Turkish culture and learn something about the Turkish language and then using italki or something like that, uh, 10 different Skype conversations with people from Turkey where I'm going to ask them questions like you've asked me today, then I will come out of that learning way more than just getting on a plane and going to Istanbul. So sorry to back to your question of what's the question I would recommend people ask themselves is find the opposite point of view of anything that you currently think is true. Just pick something that you think of as true right now and find a way to think the opposite of it. And uh, good luck doing that with politics. (laughs)
0: Love it. That's great. And then last question related to it, what's one action you would recommend, an action step or challenge you would want somebody listening to this to do for themselves?
1: Hmm. (laughs) Well, it's not much of a challenge, but since this, this is the last question, I will totally take your cue and say that anybody listening to this, you should email me and introduce yourself because that is my favorite part of what I do are all the cool people I meet along the way. So yeah, go to org and click contact and introduce yourself and say hello. That is the action I would recommend.
0: Fantastic. Thank you, Derek. (laughs) Yeah, You totally (laughs) set me up for that one. (laughs) I really did. Thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate your time.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: right you made it to the end thank you so much for listening i hope you enjoyed this episode i hope you got as much out of it as i did i there's i took so many notes and i'm so appreciative of derek taking the time to answer my questions overall i had a great time talking to him and this is going to be an episode that definitely stays with me and i'm going to be thinking about often check out my daily blog if you're interested in reading instead of listening Again, if you want to support the Renaissance, you can hop over to renaissancelife.com slash support or follow the link in the show notes and leave a tip. Or a great free way to support the show is to subscribe and leave a review for the Renaissance Life podcast on Apple Podcasts. That helps others find the show. Don't forget to check out the show notes, which should be on your uh, podcast feed, or if you go to renaissancelife.com slash Sivers, You will see all the show notes there as well. Again, my new monthly newsletters, Considerations, Practices, and Bookaholics. Uh, You can go to renaissancelife.com slash considerations or slash practices or slash bookaholics and find those three. Considerations is about creative inputs. Practices is about creative outputs. And Bookaholics is for all those beautiful book lovers out there in the world. Additionally, I've created a downloadable PDF that you can get by subscribing to my free newsletters. In it, you'll see a list of 10 challenges that you can go through all based around insights Derek had in this conversation. Think of it as a great way to put what was said into practice in your own life. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Let me know. Feel free to email me, josh at life.com. For any feedback or thoughts that you have on the episode, thanks for listening. Until the next one. Bye-bye. Table beat of the week. Yes, love it. Had a bit of (laughs) a crescendo to it, (laughs) had a bit of
1: drama.